Welcome to the Biner Family Speaker Series, a podcast dedicated to high-level research on contemporary anti-Semitism by fostering productive and collegial discussion of the most pertinent issues before us. Hosted by the Indiana University Institute for the Study of Contemporary Anti-Semitism. For more information about this speaker series, ISCA News, or videos of past webinars, please visit our website at isca.indiana.edu. And now to present our speaker, Dr. Alvin H. Rosenfeld. And greetings to everyone who's looking in. Uh, we have a very special program today. You'll learn lots from our speaker, whom I will introduce in just a minute. Uh, normally, I team up, as those of you who look in regularly know, with my colleague Gunther Yekeli. He can't be with us today in his normal role. So it's great that one of our graduate students, Alicia Breton, is spelling him. Um, we all recognize, that's to say, those of us who look hard at contemporary anti-Semitism uh, and try our best to explain it, we know that it's multi-causal. It doesn't reduce to any one factor. Uh, what we tried to do in this series is acknowledge that fact. Last week, we had a speaker from Berlin concentrate specifically on right-wing developments in Germany. Today, we're going to look at developments in this country on the political left, uh, which isn't to deny in any respect that America also is not visited by serious uh, anti-Jewish hatreds from the other side too, but our emphasis today will be on the political left. Um, our scholar is well equipped to take us on a tour of that phenomenon. Linda Maisels did her PhD at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. She's long been interested in anti-Semitism um, did a dissertation having to do with campus anti-Semitism, and in 2021 published a valuable article on campus anti-Semitism in a book published by Indiana University Press that year, 2021. To her major credit, she followed that up more recently with this book, what is anti-Semitism, a contemporary introduction? My oh my, Linda, uh, mazal tov to you for this publication. It's a very comprehensive study of the subject, beginning with a hard look and a very detailed look at anti-Semitism in the ancient world, going on to devote several chapters to anti-Semitism in the Christian-dominated world and switching to a world in which Islam has played a major role. And beyond those things, looking at contemporary anti-Semitism in a number of its manifestations, the book is ideal for classroom work and also for community discussion as well. So I strongly recommend this book published by Routledge by Linda Maisels, our speaker, What is Anti-Semitism? Today, she's going to be selective and look at one piece of that as already announced. 
and that has to do with anti-Semitism in America from the political left. Linda, thanks so much for joining us, and I'm happy to now hand over to you. Alvin, thank you so much. And Alicia, thank you for being here. Um, I appreciate it. It's an honor to be asked to speak. I also want to thank everyone who has joined us because I know that for many of you, it's the middle of the day and to show up on a Sunday, your weekend to discuss difficult subjects, uh, it really requires some dedication to the subject. For, so I thank you all for that. Um, I do want to give you one caveat about my talk that as Alvin uh, already mentioned to you, I am, uh, much of my scholarship has to do with anti-Semitism on campus. So while anti-Semitism on the left in America is much more comprehensive than that, oftentimes, uh, well, at least in these days, the campus is seen as kind of a shorthand for some of the excesses of the left. So while I'm acknowledging that, that there are issues in many parts of the political left, many of my examples will be coming from the campus. So keep that in mind that I'm not trying to, that this is also a concession to the amount of time that I have to get through this talk. So given that caveat, I want to tell you that I want to start with two stories or examples. One of them is almost completely unrelated to the subject, but I hope that I'll be able to bring it out around in the end so that you will see the relevance. And the second is much more relevant and much more obvious. The first thing I want to talk about is the NFL, not unfortunately the National Football League but the National Forensics League, which is now called the Association, uh, the National Speech and Debate Association. And what it governs is uh, high schoolers and now middle schoolers who want to participate in speech and debate. Uh, I participated in it, probably many of you did as well. I did not bring this up to tell you that I was the Oregon State Humorous Interpretation Champion, although that's a nice side perk that I'm able to throw that in. But I wanna to talk to you about policy debate, which you know, many, many years ago when I was doing this, the policy debaters were the elite. Many of these students were bound for Ivy League universities. They showed up in suits with, in these pre-computer times, huge boxes of evidence. And the point of policy debate was of course to debate your side, but to as quickly as you could rattle off as many points of evidence as you could and thus gain points. And it evolved to the point where you had, you know, teams of very smart, very intelligent students rattling off data. And the heads, the responsible adults in charge of the National Forensics League were not pleased with this outcome. They understood the need for it, but realized that what the students weren't getting from this was the art of persuasion the art of really listening to another team, absorbing what they were saying, understanding their argument, and then producing your own, and in that time trying to persuade. So rather than taking place in echo chambers that you were making an effort to reach other people beyond the people already committed to your cause or to your idea. So again, this has nothing to do with what I'm talking about for now. So I wanna take that idea, put it on a shelf, and have us think about it when we return to the end of this talk. Uh, uh, part of the reason is that uh, when the National Forensics League was not pleased with the way policy debate was going, they created a new idea that was going to complement it. And I'll talk about that at the, end of, at the end of my talk. So I also now wanna jump to a story that is more germane to actually what I'm talking about, which is the American Studies Association, which many of you know that the American Studies Association voted to boycott Israel by supporting the BDS movement in 2013. And given that, as I was preparing for this talk, I began to think about the, the breadth of that, uh, of that boycott and what that affected. 
In particular, American Quarterly, which is a venerable publication that has been around since the 1940s and is the flagship publication of the American Studies Association. My question was, how did this, how did the boycott, did the buildup to it affect how many Jewish, how many, how many articles about Jews, Judaism, and related subjects were being published? So I took a look and I looked um, at a limited run, mostly things that were online. I looked at all the journals from 1996 until the present. My preconceived notion was that I would see a fair amount of articles about Jews or Judaism or Yiddish culture or whatever else in the 90s, that this might taper off as we got closer to the boycott date of 2013, and that after that, I would see no articles. However, I found something different, which some people might have expected, but I did not. In the 90s, there were virtually no articles about Jews, Judaism, or various uh, related subject in American Quarterly, in the American Studies Association's journal. There was nothing. Now, there were Jewish contributors, don't get me wrong, or at least I would guess that from their names, but there was no information about Jews, almost none. There were in the, in the mid-90s some about individual Jews. Um, for instance, Betty Friedan that might mention her Jewishness, but it was not a focal point of the article. There, and there were a few scattered, scattered articles about, about Jews in the 90s. Mostly what we saw, however, in those, in those journal articles were references to identity, to race, to gender, at the time multiculturalism, which if you remember that term, that was the 90s iteration of some of what we're seeing today, and also a lot of questions about what is American studies. As I proceeded into the OOs, I saw some different words, colonialism, diversity, an emphasis on masculinity and picking that apart, the word indigenous, corporatization, neoliberalism, and also quite importantly, how American studies intersects with ethnic studies. So those were some of the dominant themes through the OOs and really up to the present. But again, very little information on Jews and almost none on other white ethnics in America, including Irish Americans, Italian Americans, who, uh, and other white ethnic groups. The capper of this is that there was an edition of the journal produced in December 2015 that was exclusively devoted to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and how that applies to American studies. So I'd like to share that with you. I'm going to share my screen. Um, let me know when you can see that. Alicia, is that visible? Thank you. So this in, within this larger uh, larger edition was an article by Hatem Bezian um, in December 2015. It's titled The Islamophobia Industry and the Demonization of Palestine, Implications for American Studies. In that he says, academe should take the lead in exploring the entanglement of the pro-Israel groups and organizations in Islamophobia content production. Scholars in American studies should centralize research and teaching about Islamophobia because of the impact it has in normalizing racist discourses in society. I urge American studies scholars to be at the forefront and earnestly embrace Islamophobia studies with intersectionality and connectedness to all struggles for social justice, while also affirming the centrality of Palestine's narrative in the field. So here was Bayesian's, uh, you know, clarion call that American studies is intimately involved with, is, with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because of its connectedness with all struggles for social justice. 
So I found this interesting. I also found interesting that uh, at the 2016 conference, there were nine full panels and some 20 papers on the evil of Israel and Zionism. There were no op opposing viewpoints that were publicized. Now, I'm not saying that uh, that this was a Judenrein or a Jewish free space, because obviously there were Jews contributing to the journal. Jews contributing to the journal, but there weren't Jews within the journal. And also none within, uh, within some of the uh, conferences that I looked at. So what this means is that, well, uh, if there was a, a lack, if there were a lack of Jews, if there was some non-presence, did this somehow contribute to the fact that it was much easier in American studies to come forward with uh, uh, with a BDS vote? I don't necessarily have an answer for that. I also don't know that this affected the quality of of American of research about American Jews. There are all kinds of journals where this can be published. In uh, there are journals of American Jewish history, there are journals of American history, American Jewish literature, and American literature, American Jewish sociology, and American sociology. So did the research suffer? No. But did the fact that Ameri the American Studies Association seemed like it had very little interest in anything having to do with Jews other than the potential demonization, to use that word, of Israel, then this probably reflected the, uh, the end point, which was a BDS resolution and a continuing non-emphasis on Jews and their position in, Amer in American society. So I want to go on to describe anti-Semitism in the left, which is something that I also do in my book, as I understand it, give examples for that to support my concept, and then conclude with ideas for possible solutions, whether or not those are viable. So I want to start by saying, and Alvin already referred to us, to this, that when we're describing contemporary anti-Semitism, it's not the best idea to look at different iterations of it in a vacuum. Anti-Semitism of the left and right are not isolated phenomena, but too often we discuss them in that way, uh, that, that, they, uh, that there's only one that we should be concerned about. As a matter of fact, I'm often asked in Jewish circles, well, anti-Semitism of the blank is actually worse than this one. Anti-Semitism of the left is actually more dangerous than the right, or the right is more dangerous than the left. Now, certainly, uh, thinking people can take all kinds of positions on this, and you can have a rational argument about it. But I don't think this is the question we should be, we should be asking. All it does is contribute to political polarization. What we need to be asking is how can we talk about anti-Semitism in a holistic sense, problems on the left, problems on the right. And what that forces us to do is to acknowledge not only the anti-Semitism of our opponent or what we see in that camp, but also the anti-Semitism of our own. It is my belief that only when we can do that type of self-reflection that we will be on the road to finding more solutions. Once again, concern for anti-Semitism on the left, which, which I have been studying now since the early OOs, should not result in minimizing dangerous animosity toward Jews on the right that comes from the right. I think also when we look at these as, uh, as discrete phenomena, then we forget that leftist anti animosity toward Jews can mirror that of their ideological opposite, opposites on the far right. So for instance, Gil Troy in an article in 2021 talked about the problem of the word Jewish supremacy. Now certainly the idea of Jews thinking of their own supremacy or their own dominion over white races it races is a white supremacist concept popularized beginning, of course, in the 19th century. 
and this idea that Jews, while being somehow inferior, were looking to exert themselves and to rule over all, to the detriment especially of white Europeans. So this is a term that clearly has a long anti-Semitic history. But this has been adopted in some cases, and this is what Giltroy refers to, by pal supporters of pa Palestinian cause that say that Jewish supremacy is the way that Jews, those that support Israel and are Israelis themselves, have a concept of Jewish superiority or Jewish supremacy and dominion over Palestinians. Now, of course, where that well, there may be some who have that individual viewpoint to ascribe that to the entire group is to indulge in conspiracy theory um, and conspiratorial thinking. And if we look only at, at the left or only at the right, we will miss that connection. So again, it's crucial to look at these all, all together. Additionally, I think we need to keep in mind that uh, Jews are the face of predatory capitalism for both the left and the right. And we see examples of this, for instance, in the 1990s uh, at San Francisco State University. There was a mural painted to honor Malcolm X, and on it were emblazoned uh, dollar signs, skulls and crossbones, and the Magen David, Stars of David. The mural was, evident, was eventually taken down, but for the students who painted it, their argument was that this was not anti-Semitic. It was merely emphasize, emphasizing Malcolm X's views toward Israel um, and toward the destructive impulses of supporters of Israel and their, and their connection to capitalism. More recently, we can look to, of course, Congresswoman Ilan Omar, who in deriding what she felt, what she saw as the Israel lobby and its control or, or, uh, or uh, dominion over uh, the American Congress, talked about, about it's all about the Benjamins baby, which in other words means it's all about the money. So keeping all of this in mind, I want to jump to, as Alvin said, the way I conceptualized this in my recent book. And again, Alvin, thank you for bringing that up that if we are looking at post-World War II anti-Semitism uh, extending into contemporary times, then we really need to look at three different streams. Um, and all of these are difficult to conceptualize. It is easy to argue with the way that I have segmented them, but these are the, way, these are the ways that I think we need to think of it. There are two streams within the Christian, what I call the Christian-influenced world, and that's the political right and the political left. We also need to think of anti-Semitism that stems from the Islamic-influenced world. So we have those three different streams. Let's start, in a sense, with the easiest when we're describing contemporary anti-Semitism. In the Western Christian-influenced world, we have anti-Semitism on the political right. Now, in many ways, this is the easiest, easiest place to find consensus. Most people, most rational people, most people to the center of the discourse, understand that a swastika painted on a Jewish institution is anti-Semitism. We know what it is, we recognize it, and most importantly, that authorities understand how to deal with it or to react with it. Now, of course, there are some conceptions, it's not, or some exceptions, it's not always that easy. So for instance, again, in the 1990s, uh, if you will recall with the rise of Holocaust denial as a, as a phenomenon that really was making world news, um, occasioned books, most notably by Deborah Lipstadt in, the, in 1993, I believe. One of the byproducts of this emphasis of this sort of sudden notoriety of Holocaust deniers is that they wanted, uh, they wanted more recognition. And so there was an effort by a group called CODO, 
the Committee on Open Debate of the Holocaust, uh, led by a gentleman named Bradley Smith. And their aim was to place advertisements in university newspapers that would question the Holocaust. It was not, um, it was couched in sort of pseudo academic language in a, uh, in a spirit of inquiry. But really what it was, was uh, anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial. And what we found is that some newspapers of these university newspapers did not agree to run those ads, but others did. Others at very fine universities made the decision, even if they were left-leaning, using the argument of this is an example of promoting freedom of speech, which is somewhat ironic given this, the freedom of speech uh, arguments that we have today. But this was an example of where the left was, while not complicit with, and even the part of the left that recognized that this was hateful speech still did not feel a need to condemn it. So I want to put that, think about that. In the Islamic influenced world, and I'm not going to spend that much time on that in this talk, what I found most difficult in characterizing this is precision of language. How do you discuss in a straightforward manner the anti-Semitism that does occur in the Islamic influenced world without demonizing an entire religious culture? And also allowing for in this country that we have an openness to potentially offensive political speech and opinion, because we do have uh, we do have tenets of freedom of speech and expression, both in the uh, out in the outside world and also on campus. So these were some of the difficulties in characterizing in characterizing these two uh, these two uh, streams, and there can be pitfalls, but that's the way I would characterize these. The last in the Western Christian influenced world is the problem of the political left. Now, once again, much like characterizing the stream from Islam, the Islamic influenced world, how to discuss anti-Semitism from the political left in a straightforward manner while allowing for offensive political speech and opinion. And this is extraordinarily important. And this is some of the minutia of wrangling about definitions, and we'll talk later about the IRA definition and the Jerusalem Declaration, much of what they, that argument is hinging on is views of what is acceptable uh, to say about Israel, about Zionism, opposing Israel and Zionism. What can you say before that crosses a line into anti-Semitism? Of course, as we know, that's been, uh, that's been a major part of the, of the discussion um, uh, in all kinds of circles, scholarly as well as political. One of the other problems with discussing uh, anti-Semitism on the political left is, unfortunately, its subject subjectivity. Len Sachs at Brandeis University did some interesting studies that I think were around 2016 to 2018. And in those, they asked students about whether or not they felt that they were under attack uh, by anti-Semitic attacks on Israel and Zionism, or simply uh, under attack for supporting Israel and Zionism. Perhaps unsurprisingly that what they found is that Jews with a less with a less rich or thick Jewish identity felt more exposed when put in the position of feeling that they had to defend Israel and Zionism, whereas those more comfortable in their Jewish identity were were often feeling less under attack. Additionally, Jewish students could opt in and opt out. They could decide whether or not they were going to be visible and out as a Jew on campus, or they could decide whether or not they were going to, uh, to not be involved or to, some would say, to closet themselves. Uh, and that also leads to one of the issues on the left, which is 
one of the allegations on the left is that support for Israel is not an identity issue, it's a political choice. And in some cases that might be true, but we also know that for some people, for some uh, Jews, support for Israel is an integral part of their identity. So again, navigating all of these pitfalls in describing contemporary anti-Semitism on the political left, this all comes into play. The other thing I want to describe is that there are on the left sins of commission and sins of omission. What does this mean? That there are times on the left when someone, uh, either a group, an individual, or an organization will take an activity that others will deem anti-Semitic. And this is, I think this is often what we talk about, times when the left has done something we deem anti-Semitic. But omission is a difficult, is a little more tenuous to talk about, but it's also important. And I think that we are hearing about it more and more. People are talking about this more and more when Jews are somehow left out of the discourse of uh, groups individuals or groups that experience some kind of prejudice, discrimination, or in the parlance of the university, some kind of oppression. And we need to look at both of those. So I want to start with uh, commission, simply because it's um, it's easier, on, for me at least, um, and more straightforward and probably more things that we've that we have all heard about. So for instance, one element of commission by, might be when Israel is described by someone on the political left as being a Nazi state or a fascist state. Now, according to the IRA definition, this is an anti-Semitic act. This type of rhetoric is anti-Semitic. Those um, on the farther left, supporters of the Jerusalem Declaration, would disagree. And of course, thoughtful people can have a discussion about whether or not stating that Israel is a Nazi regime uh, is anti-Semitic, it's possible to discuss that. For me personally, I know that it's vile, offensive, and historically not accurate. But again, could still have a somewhat a rational discussion with someone on whether or not this crosses a line into open anti-Semitism. However, problematically, we need to look at the larger culture as well, as long as we're looking at things in context and realizing how ubiquitous it has become to compare someone with whom we do not agree to Nazis fascists and what is happening to them as a Holocaust. Again, much of this is egregious, vile, and historically inaccurate. However, uh, what, because the IRA definition tells us that we need to look at incidents in context, it's very important that when someone uh, makes that equation, we need to find out the context of that and where, where they are coming from and what the particulars are of that incident. We know also that acts of silencing that that uh, focus specifically on Israel, Zionism, or Israelis trying to speak um, also can be deemed anti-Semitic. So for instance, particularly in the early OOs, there were a number of incidents where Israeli speakers, even if they were not speaking on the subject of Israel, were silenced by the heckler's veto and shouted down. Again, this act of commission can be uh, difficult to pin down. Certainly protest is allowed. American campuses and American America in general has a long history of productive protest. But what we know in a controlled atmosphere like the campus is that that protest cannot interfere with the speaker or should not, should not intimidate those people who have come to see the speaker and that it is not an infringement of uh, protesters freedom of speech 
to allow speech, which is often an argument that the very presence of an Israeli speaking is somehow an infringement of progressives or leftist uh, speech. This is not correct. Everyone on campus should be allowed to voice their opinion. There should be protests and there can be counter protests, but all this has to take place in a respectful way, which does not always happen. There are also times when more obviously anti-Israel speech or action becomes more openly anti-Semitic. So for instance, in 2018, the State University of New York at Stony Brook, where students from the uh, Students for Justice in Palestine group argued that the campus Hillel should be, uh, should be denied funding and should be replaced by a proper Jewish organization that doesn't support Israel. In other words, these students were saying that they somehow as external actors had the right to define who was a good Jew and who was a bad Jew. And that Hillel, despite the fact that it's a venerable organization that has been around since the 1920s, that handles all aspects of Jewish student life, should somehow be barred from campus because it is a supporter of Israel. And this clearly is an instance where animosity toward Israel could move over, slop over in a sense, to affect uh, Jews, Jewish organizations, and Jewish students. There was, um, as an aside, a brave Muslim chaplain who called on the SJP students to abandon this, this agenda of hate and alienation, as she called it, um, and defended the Hillel. SBG, SJP students then attacked the Muslim chaplain, accusing her of working with Zionists. So here's a clear example of a sin of commission. Lastly, outside of campus, uh, there is a, a larger uh, social justice movement um, called the Sunrise Movement, and in 2021, they were trying to put together a voting rights co coalition. A local chapter, Sunrise DC, called for the removal of three progressive Jewish groups in this voting rights co coalition. One of them was the Jewish Council for Public Affairs, uh, the Reform Movement's Religion, the Religious Action Center, and also the National Council of Jewish Women. The national movement reprimanded the local movement and said that their actions were um, unacceptable and anti-Semitic because they were barring progressive Jewish organizations who happened to hold a, uh, a pro-Israel, pro pro-Zionist, two-state solution point of view. Uh, that the local chapter had wanted to ban had wanted to ban these progressive organizations, yet had not wanted to ban other progressive organizations that were not Jewish, that held the same. Uh, viewpoint toward Israel. So again, this is another time a sin of commission that clearly uh, is anti-Jewish anti in nature, even if it was originally aimed at Israel and, and uh, the movement of Zionism. Now again, as we move into mission, this is somewhat trickier. David Badiel talks about this, and I will get back to David Badiel at the end of this talk. Uh, what this is is ignoring uh, omission is when we the left ignores attacks against Jews by reactionary forces. So one example of this, this isn't necessarily the left, but this is a more of a larger society problem. In 2022, we know that a British citizen held four people hostage at a Fort Worth, Texas synagogue for 11 hours. His aim was to force the release of a Pakistani woman serving an 86-year sentence in the United States for having tried to kill uh, U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan. As this was going on, the FBI's Dallas field office put out a statement saying that, uh, that the, the uh, attacker, the, the hostage taker, was motivated by an issue not specifically related to the Jewish community. 
the immediate reaction in the Jewish community was that this was not correct. The attacker was motivated by the fact that he felt that Jews held some supernatural power that would allow them to convince the government to take action and to free this political to free this prisoner. Um, and that by putting pressure on the Jewish community, Jews whose lives were valued well above um, uh, other people's lives, that he would actually gain results. And for the FBI, which I would not call the FBI a leftist organization, but the FBI was uh, was unwilling to consider that this uh, that this was not exactly what was going on, and that there was a real anti-Jewish animosity to it. So that's something that's in the larger um, in the larger community. But let's look next. Um, oh, I skipped a slide. So we've already talked about uh, sins of commission and ignoring attacks against Jews by reactionary forces. Um, we've also talked about the idea of good Jews and bad Jews. Uh, you might remember that in, I think, 2017, the New School constituted a panel on anti-Semitism. It caused quite an uproar because uh, Muslim activist Linda Sarsour was part of the panel. But if you look at the other uh, participants in the panel, all of whom I believe were Jewish, all of them were uh, on the very left side of questions of anti-Semitism uh, and Israel. And so what you have is a panel with absolutely no ideological diversity, which leaves off Jews who might object to a leftist conception of what anti-Semitism is. By the way, this is a problem also duplicated on the political right. We know the political right can also put together panels with not very much, uh, with not very much political or ideological diversity. So this isn't just a leftist problem, but by ignoring uh, the mainstream of Jewish opinion on what anti-Semitism is and concentrating on uh, a more extreme leftist viewpoint, then you have made your choice that only certain Jews' voices count. There's also the problem of excluding Jews as a community of concern. So I want to, uh, to talk about that now, much like with the example that I brought up about the FBI. Uh, in On the left, there is there is a tendency to ignore Jews when they are attacked by reactionary forces. So for instance, in uh, you all re will remember in Charlottesville in 2017, when American white supremacists organized to march. Now, ostensibly, they were uh, marching to protest the removal of Confederate statues and memorials uh, within, the, within the city. However, what they did in their march is they demonized and, uh, and called out and made hateful comments about people of color, about immigrants, and about other minority groups. And as a matter of fact, as you can see from this, uh, from this statement, that white supremacy, a member of this marching group drove into a crowd of counter protesters, killing a young woman and injuring at least 19 others. And this was a horrific event that shook the United States and many people in it to their core. Uh, and certainly many organizations wanted to denounce these actions, including the National Women's Studies Association. So I'm showing you, this is a two-part slide. This is the first part of their statement on the matter, um, where they denounce the actions of white supremacists. And you'll see that some of this is bolded because the original statement by the National Women's Studies Association, which by the way, is also an academic organization that at one point support, that also uh, passed a BDS resolution, um, the National Women's Studies Association denounced the actions of these uh, white supremacists, but they did not 
mention Jews. And I want to show you the second part of this, and we'll come back to it. So it mentions, of course, the killing of 32-year-old Heather Heyer and that they, they a Black man was beaten. And they also list, listed that white supremacy and fascism have always been intricately, intricately connected with misogyny, patriarchy, transphobia, homophobia, ableism, and settler colonial logics. However, in the original statement uh, that, the North, that the Women's Studies Association put out, this bolded word, anti-Semitism, was left out. Now, what we know from that, from that march is that along with attacking people of color, immigrants, and other minority groups, that the marchers were uh, chanting, Jews will not replace us, which of course is the central tenet of replacement theory, which says that Jews are, again, masterminds of a conspiracy to replace the white race with immigrants and other people of color. Now, this is a right-wing problem. This is not a left-wing problem. The problem comes in where the National Women's Studies Association, in its original statement, without these bold, this bolded uh, text, might have heard Jews will not replace it, but somehow deep down didn't hear it. And their original statement did not include this bolded text, even though Jews were clearly part of the community under attack, just like people of color, immigrants, and other minor minority groups. So after this was pointed out to them, to their credit, the National Women's Studies Association did add in, we condemn threats made against local synagogues and the use of Nazi era slogans, such as blood and soil and Jews will not replace us at these protests and did add here, the caveat about anti-Semitism. However, in a certain sense, and I commend them for this, the damage was done in that even when anti-Semitism from the right was plainly in their field of vision, they couldn't see it and couldn't condemn it. This is, of course, because Jews uh, within, uh, within Amer the American left and beyond as well are seen as white and privileged and therefore are not, are, are not part of that uh, group or pantheon of groups that are oppressed or that, are, are, or that suffer. This privilege makes them somehow different. I was just uh, in a, a teaching in a course where there was a um, uh, Jewish studies professional who was quite concerned because at her university, Jews had undergone, Jewish students had undergone an anti-Semitic event. And she approached the diversity, equity, and inclusion office for help and redress for this problem. And what she was told is that the students could have help um, with this problem, problem of anti-Semitism. However, they first needed to acknowledge their white privilege, which of course is not something that Jews, anyone, any student who is in pain and suffering from some sort of, a, of an attack, particularly in the hypersensitive times that we live in now, to, uh, to force them to admit somehow that their suffering or their, their anguish was lessened because, uh, because of the way they are classified uh, on campus and within, particularly in, on the left, this is upsetting. And while this is where sins of omission become difficult. Is this anti-Semitism? I think we can legitimately ask that. Is this anti-Semitism or is this creating a larger climate of opinion, opinion and a larger uh, feeling on campus where Jews and their, and their suffering can be marginalized? I have other examples as well, and I know we're getting uh, close to, uh, to time. Stanford, recent, uh, within, in 2021, 
had uh, an incident where two people, not people on the right wing, people who supported the idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, psychotherapists who joined in to a larger training and to a larger initiative to promote DEI initiatives. But what they found after the program began is that the staff of this program, the Stanford Counseling Program, intentionally overlooked anti-Semitic incidents on campus. There were repeated incidences, instances in which anti-Semitic symbols were intentionally ex excluded from the dialogue and also overt anti-Semitism expressed by several leaders of the DEI committee. So once again, these are not right-wing agitators. These are people firmly on the left and in support of diversity, equity, and, inc and inclusion who could see that Jews were omitted, were marginalized. And what that meant, not only were they marginalized, but that actual instances of anti-Semitism were ignored. Another, uh, another issue, very recent, James Madison University and Holocaust Remembrance Day. Uh, there was a Holocaust Remembrance Day at James Madison University, which is wonderful, which is, uh, which is a, good, uh, a good impulse, of course. However, the planning committee was, uh, well, the event itself was boycotted by many of the Jewish staff and faculty. Why? There were some uh, criticisms of the program and the level of respect of the program, but also uh, the Jewish community at, the, at James Madison University seemed to feel that Jews were not adequately represented on the committee to plan the event. The reply from the Vice President of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion is that committee members were selected based on substantive experience and commitment to the creation of an event that properly marks the occasion. No one was included or excluded explicitly based on a particular protected characteristic, which sounds on the surface good, like a meritocracy, that the people who are going to participate in this were chosen because of their interest, because of their credentials. But the reality of campus life and its emphasis on identity politics is that to put together a Holocaust Remembrance Day without the explicit support of at least most of the Jewish community uh, would be, I, and I can't think of a parallel, if you had a celebration, for instance, of Juneteenth and decided that um, African-American uh, comment and participation was not allowed, of course you'd want to put together a diverse committee, but this, given, given uh, campus, the campus climate, campus, campus atmosphere, seems difficult and another uh, matter of omission. I want to skip ahead uh, again because we're running short of time. I know that these impulses are not new. How do I know this? Because we can see, starting in the 60s and 70s, the Jewish officials are already sounding something of an alarm about this. Benjamin Epstein and Arnold Forster, Forster who wrote the first book-length treatment of what was then called the new anti-Semitism, there is abroad in our land a large measure of indifference to the most profound apprehensions of the Jewish people, a blandness and apathy in dealing with anti-Jewish behavior, a widespread incapacity or unwillingness to comprehend the necessity of the existence of Israel to Jewish safety and survival. And this is how Epstein and Forster saw uh, what they called the new anti-Semitism. They were not alone in this characterization. Here, Earl Robb, who was a noted uh, Jewish professional writing and commentary, wrote that there is a symmetry between the hostility expressed toward the legitimacy of Israel as a Jewish state and the hostility expressed toward the legitimacy of the American Jewish community as a distinct ethnic group. And this is really where we get into the problem of omission that Jews in 1974, according to Earl Robb, were being passed over. 
lest you think, because the when we put the term commentary up there, it immediately invites that this is a this is a more conservative or right leaning publication. But Marla Brettschneider, who, as I understand it, I've met her a couple of times, speaks firmly from the left. Uh, also, in 1996, that ide with identities becoming fair game in politics, Jewishness is taking a beating from the left in ways in which Jews are usually more accustomed to being attacked from the right. Um, part of the problem being that some of the attacks come from marginalized rather than powerful groups, but they use the same tropes about how Jews run the world and are to blame for the world's problems. So ending with, despite our community's apparent success, we remain marginalized from the majority Christian culture, adding insult to injury, despite our minority status and experience, often we are marginalized in multicultural circles. Uh, again, Sarah Horowitz writing in the, par the Paradox of Jewish Studies in the New Academy in an anthology for 1998, who felt that when she got into Jewish studies, that she would have allies within women's studies, minority studies, and black studies departments. But when the inevitable borderlines were drawn, Jewish studies lay outside my university's rubric of multicultural studies, just as it lay outside the boundaries of many professional dialogues on multicultural theories and practices. Think back again to uh, um, the American Quarterly and the American Studies Association, where Jews were somehow seen as not an interesting topic of discussion and were not seen as part of, in this case, the multicultural or the intersectional academy. Last, to bring this up to date, David Badiel in Jews Don't Count. If you suggest to progressives that there is an unconscious or otherwise hierarchy of racisms in which anti-Jewish ra Jewish racism is placed lower as a concern than others, you will quickly be accused by progressives of racism, or at least of minimizing the struggle of other minorities. And it leaves Jews who feel the hierarchy of racisms nowhere to go. So this is not a new thought, but I think this is a continuance that Jews, particularly in a time of rising anti-Semitism in this country and in other places as well, that they do not have a place to go, that there is not one political concern or one other group that has our back, if you will. Again, I want to stress, and this uh, is an excellent article that Ken Walter wrote in Fathom in 2018, um, talking about BDS. He wrote that if at Charlottesville neo-Nazis carried signs avowing Jews will not replace us, progressive students in SJP and in other allied groups seem now to say Jews will have no place among us. And of course, we can talk about reflections in the way, for instance, in Jewish emancipation struggles in Europe, the right and the left had different reactions to whether or not Jews had a place as full citizens within those countries. And while, while both sides displayed anti-Jewish animosity, the left was perhaps more willing to concede that if Jews would give up their particular Jewishness and their particular Jewish concerns, they would have a place. And so we see this duplicated in what Ken Walzer saw on campuses at this time. I wanna wrap this up, of course, um, with a couple more thoughts. I will end with this, but first I wanna get back to my uh, my strange example of the, uh, of the National Forensics League and uh, our friends, the students running around in suits, uh, debating and not really listening to one another. The antidote that the National Forensics League came up with was to create a new kind of debate that they called Lincoln-Douglas debate, values debate. And the whole idea of that was to listen again to your opponent, to evolve, um, to evolve a perspective and to be persuasive. I'm always asked at the end of these talks, yes, yes, you've gone through all of this information, but what do we do? 
And I like to say that I'm a resident of Baltimore. I can see the problems here. I can't tell you what we should do to solve them. And similarly, I feel somewhat impotent in trying to ascertain what we could do uh, about you know, a, a specific actions we could take to make this better. All I can tell you is that I know that what happened in the National Forensics League took place in a controlled atmosphere with high school students and, uh, and um, uh, you know, adults who were responsible and were looking and trying to ascertain what problems were occurring. But I think that all of us need to look at discourse and how uh, we are all, because of political polarization, and in this case on the left, are ignoring not understanding what is going on on the other side of the equation, that we are formulating our, our arguments in echo chambers. And we are not stopping to ask how other people are affected by our arguments. I think you can say this about the right, but today, I think you can really say this about the left. And what I've tried to demonstrate is that Jews are somehow ab absent from the consideration of much of the political left. So I want to uh, stop with a, an article that I just read in the New York Times by David French, where he wrote that the road to a more empathetic and just society is also paved by an accurate understanding of our neighbors, with exceptions, of course, with exceptions. They're not monsters. Their views aren't rooted in malice, and we should extend the same grace to the good faith expression of their ideas that we seek for our own. I don't want to end this on a Pollyanna-ish note. Uh, this is the ideal uh, toward which we should all strive. This is the important part. This is the way that we behave in democratic societies. But what I would also say is that not only do we have to respect others, we need to fight and we need to stand up and we may need to make sure that they are respecting us. Thank you very much.